How do I write music for TV? How do I get my music on TV shows? And how do I pitch my music to a TV show? If you're interested in these questions, then this episode is just for you. Welcome to Rewind, the podcast that will help you grow your music career. My name is Amit Weiner. I'm a composer for film and TV, and I'm on a mission to help musicians find career opportunities and help them navigate the vast world of the music industry. With 20 years of industry experience and having advised to hundreds of musicians on career issues in the last decade, I've created this podcast to help you turn your passion into reality. Let's hear it from Jeff Bill, composer of House of Cards himself. There's one other metaphor I, I think about education and artistic evolving. It's th- I think a lot about a tree. And, and so we're in a very eclectic time where we can film composers, great example, we can borrow from any style. But I always think the trees needs to have roots. Those roots need to go down somewhere. And the, and the better the roots are in the tree, the more varied and creative and, and amazing the, the branches can be. They might not seem like they have anything to do with the roots, but it's the strength of those roots which allow the tree to power and flourish. Welcome to Rewind, an optimistic podcast that'll help you in your successful career in music. Amit Weiner hosts musicians, composers, professors, and sound wizards as they share their life stories and career decisions. Stay tuned. It's going to be epic. Welcome to another episode of Rewind, the podcast that will help you build and elevate your career in music. Thank you so much for joining us in this episode. I am your host, Amit Weiner, and today we have a very, very special guest, composer Jeff Bill. But before I introduce Jeff, if you'd like to support the podcast, please don't forget to rate it and give it a follow on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This will help the podcast reach more people who might find it interesting. And now our special guest, Jeff Bill. Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. My, my pleasure, Amit. It's great to see you again. Thank you. Allow me to introduce you, please, to our listeners. Jeff Bill is one of the most prolific and respected composers working in Hollywood today. Jeff is a composer of music for film, television, and the concert hall. highly regarded as a jazz player and an accomplished composer across various styles. Jeff has been nominated for 19 Primetime Emmy Awards and has won five. Among those are four nominations and two wins for Netflix, House of Cards, which we're definitely going to talk about in this episode. That beautiful music. I have a lot of questions already prepared on that. And Jeff Bill has a catalog of 35 concert works published by G. Schirmer, including many commissioned orchestral, choral, and dance compositions. Bill founded with his wife, Joanne, in 2015, the Eastman School of Music, Bill Institute for Film Music and Contemporary Media. The Bills have also donated to fund the Collaborative Music and Medicine Initiative at the University of Rochester, having experienced the impact of music on health in their own lives. Among Jeff's credits are Pollock, House of Cards, Rome, Monk, Raymond and Ray, and many more. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. 
Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, it's great to see you. Could we start with your musical journey and could you describe how you've got to where you are today? When did you start to play an instrument and when did you know that you want to be a composer? Yeah, well, you know, the trumpet was really my first instrument that I studied um, all through my childhood. But before that, there was a piano in the house and there was always music in the house. No professional musicians, but there was a real love of music in my immediate family and several generations back, actually, my grandmother on my father's side was an amazing pianist. I actually learned after she had passed that she actually played piano for a silent movie theater in, in the United States back in the early 19th, 20th century. Um, so I think I began just by plunking songs out on the piano and I, I was immediately sort of interested in this whole thing of just being able to make music. And uh, I started learning the trumpet around third or fourth grade and continued with the trumpet all through high school basically playing classical and jazz music. I'd say there were two childhood sort of uh, artistic epiphanies that sort of really sort of um, to this day even um, sort of sort of tell 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 you in a nutshell who I am. The first the first one was, you know, when I first started playing jazz on the trumpet and started improvising, my grandmother Irene, who I mentioned just a second ago, actually when I started playing trumpet and got a little older, she actually gave me my first she reached into her collection of vinyls and gave me, uh, first record she gave me was Gil Evans, Miles Davis sketches of Spain. And I remember listening to that and just blew my mind. Um, so when I improvised, started improvising, you know, which is obviously a form of composition, I, I felt like there was something inside of me, this voice, you know, that was, that was there, you know, it was like a, it was like a channel of expression that, that I was so excited about. And that really led into composing in my early years. And then the other moment I would say was a few years later, I was trumpet player, classical trumpet player and a wonderful youth orchestra in Northern California, the Oakland Youth Symphony. And I'll never forget our conductor uh, was never, didn't want to program down to a youth orchestra. We, we were rehearsing Rite of Spring, which we took on tour uh, that summer to, to Italy. And I remember sitting in the orchestra, just listening to that piece, you know, because when you play trumpet, you don't play all the time. You spend a lot of time listening to what everybody else is doing. And it just blew my mind, you know, just the sound of Stravinsky's orchestration, the ideas, I know that there was something about the programmatic nature of the work, even though it obviously is not a film score, it's a ballet and very much written. It's music that, that story, tells a story. And I felt like that, that was the, I, 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 that's what I want to do. Like that was the image, you know? Uh, so um, after high school, I, I went on to study music. I went to a wonderful conservatory, which you mentioned earlier, where I met my wonderful wife, Joan, the Eastman school of music uh, in Rochester, New York. And, I went as a double major in composition and trumpet, studied with Christopher Rouse and Barbara Butler. And my main major actually at Eastman was a guy by the name of Ray, Ray Wright, who was an amazing arranger, orchestrator, um, kind of everything. He used to be the music director for Radio City Music Hall in the 50s before I think it came to Eastman. So that was sort of the, the beginning of his education. Um, after college, I met some guys who uh, sent me a script. I was introduced by a mutual friend and that actually became my very first film score called Cheap Shots, which I did back in the, I guess it would have been the 80s, the sort of mid to late 80s. And, uh, you know, from there, it just sort of evolved. You know, I, I earlier in my career, I was active as a jazz trumpet player, did several solo, solo records. Um, when we moved to Los Angeles in around 1991, that was when I really, the interest in film had already sort of begun. And I was really choosing that lane and and, uh, you know, that's 30 years ago, and here we are. Wow, that's fascinating. 
You know, I'm always curious asking other composers about the process of composition. So where do you start composing music? Do you start on the trumpet? Do you start on the piano? Or do you start on the MIDI keyboard on the computer? Where's the initial idea coming from? Yeah, I'm not. I'm definitely a process person. So for me, um, as I play it, I, I decide it. I, I find it. Um, obviously, I don't really write that much on the trumpet. I put this primarily at the keyboard, whether it's the piano or most of the time the MIDI keyboard. And I really enjoy that kind of um, feedback that the keyboard gives me. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I definitely think because I'm a jazz musician, the, the idea of improvisation is a big part of my process. Um, you know, so I like the, the happy accident that happens when you're composing. You know, um, I, I write most of my music in Logic, um, which I like the sequencer has uh, a feature, which I think a lot of these do, which is always sort of listening. So you don't have to hit record, which kind of takes the onus off of, okay, here is, this is an idea. You know, you can just kind of play around. And if something happens that you really like, you just hit, I just hit a button, I capture it. And a lot of the initial ideas come from, I would say, more of the subconscious part of the brain. As the piece evolves, obviously, um, you know, I pull up notation windows. I start to think about what I've written. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about writing music is once you start, you know, there's no rules when you start, but once you start a piece, the piece starts to tell you what it is, you know? So, um, uh, you know, I, 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 it's really interesting. I almost, it's almost like once it starts going and you start to find it, that's almost even more mysterious to me. Even, yes, there's technique and there's training, but it's the idea that a piece of music has a life of its own. Um, I definitely feel like uh, it's at that point, like there's sort of a channeling thing happening um, in terms of just trying to get out of the way and, and let it, let it come, let it come out, you know, let it, let it be, um, be what it is. It's like a living thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. So you would say your inspiration comes from improvisation, right? I mean, you usually start with improvising. Yeah. And also, you know, being a film composer all these years, um, it's definitely improvising. Um, I'm just good enough on the piano to be able to do that. Thank God. Um, <laughs> I would also say that, uh, you know, I, I'm really a storyteller. So if I'm writing a concert piece or writing a piece of film score, my brain always sort of goes to a story, goes to an image, a visual image. Sometimes if I'm writing a concert piece, I don't, might not know what the story is, but once I start to compose, I feel like that's one of the things that really speaks to me. And I think that's how our brains work, actually. I think, you know, um, one, of the, one of the things that makes music a fascinating language is that um, really the listener is part of the process. You know, the listener hears the music and they start to form the story in their head of what's happened. So, you know, I'm trying to be attentive to what I think is that's why I talked about, you know, the, the, the music having a life of its own, you know, once it starts going, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's inert, there's, there's motion, you know, there's forward motion. So I try to like follow that inertia or remember that, that, um, that, that momentum and, uh, and let it, let it take off. That's very interesting. So for you, is there a difference uh, between composing for the concert stage and composing for films? Is it like a different process or in both cases, you either imagine uh, a story or images, and in the second case, you have the stories and images in front of you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, it just it depends. Like if it's a ballet where I've talked to a choreographer or a collaborator about a very specific story, obviously I'll begin with that. Or like, you know, a song cycle I released last year, The Paperline Shack, which are actually going up to Boston to hear perform tonight, later on today. 
Um, there's a text. So obviously the text is giving me something, but if there's no text, it's more just, you know, I don't, a lot of times I don't know what the story is. It just, maybe I, I form a little image. I start beginning. Um, I just finished a series of 10 piano solo etudes um, that I'm going to release in the spring and really excited about this record. Cause I'm, I'm also performing them, which is something, you know, I've played piano on my scores for years and um, it's been really fun actually playing these in, in public. And um, these pieces, I got to tell you, were some of the hardest ones to write. I think, um, I think more, a big part of this is that, you know, I didn't have the computer as an aid. So it was really, I had to be able to play whatever ideas were coming forward. So obviously being a decent advanced intermediate player of the piano, I had to sort of like, as I was composing them, figure out physically, you know, how to, how to realize certain ideas, which is part of the fun, I think, of writing piano music. Um, but those, those were especially interesting. I don't think any of those etudes, I, I had, um, there weren't a lot of senses of story in each of those pieces, but now that they're done and I've played them for people, in fact, I solicited a bunch of title names. We had a few little private concerts when I sort of presented these to friends here in, in um, New York. And again, you know, the story is the story is in there. Um, it, one of the things I like about concert music is that the story doesn't have to be predefined for the audience. The audience can decide um, what the story is, you know. And as a teacher, you were also an artist in residence at the Eastman School of Music, right? And as a teacher, when students have uh, difficulties in finding inspiration or when they have writer's blocks, so what would you recommend to uh, like um, early stage composers when they are opening the DAW or Sibelius or Finale softwares and they don't have ideas coming up into their heads? Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of it's just being uncomfortable with the discomfort that is com composing. Um, obviously, if I'm writing film music, I've done it for so long that it's it's very fluid. Um, I don't spend a lot of time sort of banging my head against the wall. But that's not to say that I do have I do have those moments sometimes. In fact, I'm just starting on a, some sketches for a new opera that I'm working on. And, you know, that's much more like maybe what a beginner feels like is like, mm, what am I going to do here? You know, there's, there's more exploration and more... Um, uh, sort of, you know, there's little pauses, maybe little hesitations. I think one of my favorite um, books about writing is, a. it's not about music, but it's about writing. It's by Annie Lamott. It's called Bird by Bird. And it's just the idea that I think one thing that happens when you start to begin anything is the enormity of it is, whether it's a symphony or a five-minute piece or even a two-minute cue. If you haven't done it before, you can get overwhelmed by thinking about all you have to do. And the only way to do it is she says in this wonderful story in the book is she was, she was, her brother was late for an assignment and his father sat down. It was a whole thing he had to do about, you know, birds. And he said, we're just going to sit down and do it by bird by bird, you know, start with the sparrow, then the swallow and then the robin, you know, but that's very true. It's like, don't think about the whole, think about the specific little idea that you're working about and try to get into a flow. I think discipline is incredibly important too. I mean, I, I try to really, um, there's a certain time of day I like to write. Um, and most days that part of the morning is really set aside for that work. And I try to really get those hours in because I know that's my best time. And, and uh, that, so I think, you know, there's a whole host of coaching tips. Um, one of the things I enjoy about coming to Eastman and teaching twice a semester is that um, giving master classes and the like is also, you know, there's just certain times you get stuck. And, and without telling a student what to write, I can sometimes give them a series of choices or a point to like, what if you look to think about this? And, and I think there's, there's ways in which um, young composers 
um, can benefit from more experienced composers helping them or just responding. And this is, I think this is a, a general thing that doesn't go away. You know, I love to play things that I'm working on for other composers and get their feedback. I do this a lot with my concert music. And I think, you know, when I, when you, when you get commission from a symphony or anything, you know, there's no, there's nothing in the contract that says we have approval over this. We can change anything we want. So in a way you have ultimate freedom, which is of course great as an artist. But I realized early on and kind of coming back to concert music about 10 years ago, that I really craved that, that, that playing for other people. And there's a, there's a feeling you get when you sit in a room with somebody and you play something and just hearing how they respond to it. You know, sometimes you'll learn a lot of interesting things. You'll learn something you didn't think was working is actually really working. And maybe something that you thought was just great, maybe needs some attention or it goes on too long, or there's all sorts of subjective um, reactions that um, can be really helpful. Just having a few more pairs of ears on them. You know, this actually brings us to the issue of ego, that delicate issue we all composers are dealing with. So how do you deal with ego? Uh, let's say you're writing music for a film or a TV series and you write something that you think is so wonderful that uh, no music will ever top that again. And the director or the producer tells you, that's not what I want. Please re rewrite everything from scratch. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think, I think uh, the best advice I ever got from that is from a dear friend, um, Mark Isham, wonderful composer, fellow trumpet player. And years ago, um, Uh, we were doing some projects together. I think I was helping him on some a few things. And, and um, he said something to me, which I'll never forget. It's like, well, I never had a director tell me that's not a bad piece of music. I have had them tell me that's not what I need for the story, which is kind of the way you've just phrased it. And I, it was a great strategy for trying to depersonalize your attachment to something. That's, so that's, that's the goal, obviously. Um, but it's hard. It's hard. I won't, I won't, I won't lie. You know, there's times when I, come up with something I'm so excited about. I just hope to God they'll like it, you know? Um, you know, nine times out of 10, if I really think it's great and it really makes me feel something, nine times out of 10, other, other people, collaborators have the, the same reaction. But there is an unknown with collaborators. One is personality, I think. Um, other not one might be their personal history. It could be instrumentation or it could be they didn't, there's an instrument that just really doesn't speak to them for whatever reason. And it's, you know, these are little quirks of, of personality. And so, um, you know, most of the times I try to look at that as a challenge and try to take that feedback and let it push me into a direction of something I wouldn't have done, which is actually part of the joy of doing film music. You know, I mean, you know, part of the joy of collaboration is actually people will push you and pull you in a little bit into other areas that you might not necessarily go into. And that's the, I think that's important to have that spirit of collaboration. Um, and, and also the thing is, you know, if you write it, it's not, it, you still have it, you wrote it. So keep a bin, you know, I, I have a bin of things that weren't used and, you know, it's nice to know. I don't, I don't tend to go back to them a lot, but it's nice to know they're there, you know, or sometimes I'll listen to some demos I did for something that weren't used and it'll spur an idea. It's like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll, maybe I'll try something like that later or something. Jeff, let's move over to House of Cards, that Netflix TV series we all loved so much with your beautiful, beautiful music. So what was the process there? And let's uh, maybe even discuss specifically the beautiful uh, title theme. Is it you playing the trumpet there? Yeah, that is me playing trumpet. Yeah. 
So could you describe a little bit more to the listeners, why did you choose the trumpet? Is it because you're playing the trumpet or is it something in that trumpet with a lot of reverb that like, gives us a lot of emotional impact to the characters and to the story that we have in the series? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because the trumpet was actually one of the very last things that I sort of put on the theme as I was writing it. Wow. Um, the theme was done as a sketch for David Fincher when we met Um, on the show uh, before I even started shooting. I think I'd read three or four scripts and I had an idea. And the call came back from uh, my agent at the time saying, you know, David really loved the meeting. Um, he would love to hear some things before he starts shooting. And I said, oh, that's a, that's a fun idea. I knew, I knew David's history working with guys like, you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus who come more from the songwriter world. And he likes, and he, and he early, early on in his career before he came to just, brilliant filmmaker that is David Fincher. He started out in music video. So he gets in, he's a very musical director. Obviously, if you've seen his films, you know that about him. He's very sophisticated and, he, and music inspires him. So um, I wrote about four sketches, I think, in about a process of a week. And the main title was one of those sketches. Um, I didn't have any picture. I had a description of what the first scene was. And when I sent these four ideas to him, I didn't think this is, I didn't tell him this is maybe the main title, but I do know When I wrote that one, I thought, oh, this might be kind of like the main title idea. And the next time the, the film came back from him and his editor, Kirk Baxter, they had put my, my sketch in there. Um, so the interesting thing about the, the choice of the trumpet was that I was careful to avoid it because it is, in a way, the most quintessential or even obvious choice for Washington. It's like the Herald. It's like the very American heroic Um, sound. So, of course, when you associate it with Washington, you think about shows like maybe The West Wing or, you know, General Patton, Jerry Goldsmith's theme, or these kind of really um, bold uses of the instrument. And obviously, we knew we had a character. This is a show about Washington, but it's, it's very much an anti-hero show. You know, it's sort of a show about the dark side of politics. Um, looking at the opening sequence, I remember he had done something so cool because he, you know, there's those time-lapse photos but he very painstakingly had all the people digitally painted out from each of these scenes, which as you, as you watch the scenes, you know, it's, you don't really notice it, but it's very ghostly. It's almost like kind of strange, you know, it's got this very strange feeling to it. And I remember looking at all these iconic shots of Washington and I just thought, what if I try something with the trumpet that isn't quite, you know, I put some effects on it and make it a little tripped out a little bit, but sort of like takes kind of deconstruct you know, the heroic sound and deconstructed in something a little, little edgy or a little jazzier. And so that's, that's kind of where the initial idea came from. Wow. And how would you describe the emotional impact of the music? I mean, to me, maybe I got it all wrong, but it's something that reminds like film noir with some jazz in it, but very dark. So jazz is usually not as dark as uh, that music. Jazz is usually like more uplifting and with a joy of life and there we don't find that joy of life it's like something very gloomy and as you said like anti-hero is that what you um intended as the emotional impact of the music very much so and i think that applies to the whole score in a lot of ways you know um there is definitely a sophisticated sexy almost noirish element to the to the score i knew that david liked jazz or he liked sort of bluesy jazzy um elements in his scores And I think, I think that deal was sealed really when I read, even before, before I had this picture, I started reading about these two characters, Frank and Claire Underwood. They just, it's, you know, it just seemed like this. And it's really, this is a real credit to the, um, 
the the screenwriter, uh, Bo Williman, who adapted the series from the UK version. Bo has this amazing sense of sort of poetic, really cool, sophisticated language. And and um, I remember one of the sketches I wrote for David. I, I I didn't again. It wasn't something he asked for, but I thought I thought we need something kind of noirish, kind of dark, jazzy, satie meets I don't know, you know. Lonis Monk or, or Brad Meldow or whatever, you know? And so the, 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 that theme, you know, that idea was really born in the pilot in the first scene when Frank comes home and stays up all night and they smoke a cigarette at the window. And it's just, you know, it feels, it feels like you're in on this private, dark, evil, evil world. But I think the one thing that makes the jazz work is that it's also like kind of like it's kind of seductive. So you kind of want to be there. You know, I'm not trying to comment on the characters. I'm actually trying to hopefully, you know, describe in music their truth, the reality of their their emotional psyches, you know. Um, certainly not where I want to live, but it's where the care where these people seem to exist, you know, in their in their world. And all the other instruments, are they all live instruments or MIDI instruments? And also a technical question: do you do your own mixes as well? Yeah, great, excellent question. Um, it's a hybrid, like a lot of telephone scores have been. Um, real trumpet, of course. I played all the piano, which is mostly some samples, a lot of samples of my Steinway, which I really loved for years, and some other samples. Um, we've always, because I started writing for some strings in the pilot, we had a string section. And luckily, um, because it worked so well, we were able to keep that. So every episode had a real string section. Um, our standard size was sort of a chamber orchestra, which is the size of string orchestra. I love it. It's sort of intimate. It can still go big when you want it to. Um, it was about 17, eight violins, four violas, four cellos, one bass. Um, my son was in high school at the time, and he's a great electric bass player. He's now a wonderful, wonderfully accomplished uh, jazz bass player in uh, living in the Dallas, Texas area. He went to the University of North Texas and plays upright bass as well. But at the time... Um, he came in and played electric bass. That's he actually doubled the synth on the theme. And so occasionally I had some electric bass on the score. Um, later on in the series, so that was sign of the main palette, you know, electronics, piano, strings, trumpet, electric bass occasionally. Percussion was all MIDI. Towards the end of the run in the seasons, I guess, two, three, and four, um, we brought in an operatic voice, this high, high sort of dramatic soprano. Um, which again, I went inside the four walls. This is my wonderful wife, Joan, who's an incredible um, soprano um, that if you ever heard an opera singer somewhere in some of the episodes, uh, that was her. I think the reason I sort of thought of that is the end. There's a great scene towards the end of season two when Frank is ready to sort of win his first big battle and sort of throw throw someone under the bus. They go, He goes to the opera um, and uh, it's sort of like the Godfather kind of moment, you know, Godfather three moment. That's amazing. So the entire family is actually participating in the House of Cards music. <laughs> it's, a, it's a blast. In fact, you know, this is a fun connection back to your country. Um, we, we, I have a House of Cards and concert program that we premiered at the Kennedy Center. And we've toured this a little bit. Um, and we, one of the performances we did before COVID, we did the whole, well, I think it's probably when we first met, is, you know, we performed the whole House of Cards and concert in Jerusalem um, with the Jerusalem Symphony and I think the Israel Camerata at the convention center. So yeah, it was really fun. You know, my wife, uh, Henry and I, uh, we're like the Von Trapps from the sound of music. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Wow. And Jeff, if you were to give some tips, career tips for young musicians, what would be your tips for musicians at their early stage in their career? 
what to do and what not to do? Well, I think you need to be self-motivated. You can't wait for something to come to you. The best way to create a career is to not wait for permission. You know, uh, there's some a quote that I heard that's a, been attributed to the guys that created um, South Park, who were really brilliant, Matthew Parker and Trey Henry. And they're, they said, apparently, I should look this up to make sure that I'm quoting, but it basically said, make stuff and show it to people. And I love that because when you're a composer, that's what you should be doing. You should be making stuff all the time. I still do this in my own career. Like uh, there's a, I have a violin concerto that'll be premiered um, next month in St. Louis. And uh, this piece was born out of a desire. I had a desire for a long time to write a violin concerto. I just love the instrument. I've used violin on a lot of scores. And um, I, I met this wonderful soloist and gave her the idea about a year ago. And she said, hey, that sounds great. So we contacted um, my friend, Leonard Slacken, uh, the amazing U.S. conductor. And from that Really, that, that idea, that self-motivation, we, we had a concerto and a premiere date already in place. And, you know, I think that's really important. Obviously, the showing it to people stuff, that's the making it, making stuff. The showing it to people is really important. Um, you know, I wish I had the tools of, of IMDB and, you know, the Internet and social media and all these things to just sort of do research. It's an amazing tool. Um, having said that. Um, I really believe in 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 make, meeting people in person. I think whatever city you're in, um, if there's if there's any sort of film festival or a panel, try to get out of your house, get out of your studio. Because as composers, you know we we're sort of like hermits. You know, we are our happy places is a very sort of uh, introverted lifestyle often. And uh, and you know, I see you're smiling. I love that. See the see the rec the recognition, right? Exactly. But, you know. It's so important to get out and, and be with people and let them sort of feel who you are. If you're a performer, go out and perform. You know, before I, I met my, I was introduced to my first film agent in Los Angeles by a jazz saxophone player. Wonderful. He's still in, in Los Angeles area, Steve Tavaloni, who we, I met through my good friend, John Patitucci. We were playing a jazz gig, I remember, in, in Los Angeles shortly after I moved down. He goes, you know what? I'm going to introduce you to this, this wonderful young agent who's starting now. Carol Sue Baker was her name. And uh, she was also representing um, at that. I think Chris Young had already moved on, but she started Chris Young's career. She also started a, another one, another career at the same time, around the same time she signed me, wonderful composer, Dan, Daniel Licht, who was sadly no longer with us, but Dan did all the music for um, Dexter and many other great shows. So yes, yeah, you know, that it, because I was out there playing music, another musician said, hey, can I help you? You know, so it's always that being open to the random nature of, universe, of the universe and this is a lesson that never stops. You know, my wife and I uh, moved from Los Angeles out to New York City. We live in Manhattan now. Uh, we moved to, right at the end of COVID around 2021. I guess we came here. So we're into our third year here as New Yorkers. And I had this amazing couple, two years of, of going through what a young person goes through. I landed in a new city. Of course, yes, I know. I have a reputation and I have this wonderful success behind me. But still... I want to be a part of this city. I want to, I want to find connections and, and, and engage with it artistically. So, you know, um, this, as COVID lifted and it felt more comfortable to get out, you know, I started going out to concerts, met people, put on some concerts and, you know, it's an organic process of meeting people, which takes time. And I feel like now going into three years, I feel like, I feel like this is my home now. Got a great new community of people. I'm inspired by what they do. I learn from them. Uh, so yeah, also compose other composers, don't think of them as competition. Think of them as your partners, your friends, because you all you have a common goal, a common struggle. And um, I think some of the most helpful people ever in my career, 
personally and artistically have been other composers. Um, a good example is Mark Isham, who I mentioned earlier. Mark, you know, Mark, because he wasn't available, recommended me to the for the film that basically changed my life. He recommended me to Ed Harris for Pollock. Um, at the time, they thought it was going to be a jazz score. So being another jazz trumpet player, which is why I got that opportunity. But, um, you know, being in New York, I, I really wanted to write opera for a long time. So I've been hanging out with some of my composers I admire who write wonderful opera music like Kevin Putz or Missy Mazzulli or Nico Muley or David Tidlittle, John Carigliano's a neighbor. Um, you know, wow, that's incredible. I feel like a kid in a candy store just getting to talk to these people and, and learning from them. Um, you know, it's, it's a fa fascinating exchange. And also for me, it's really fun. I, I have to say being in New York, because a lot of these people, they also want to write film music. So I can be the person that shows them that what that world is like and give them a vision of, of maybe how they could move more into that area. Yeah, wonderful. You know, Jeff, I'd love to ask your opinion about the dilemma of tonal versus atonal music. We all know that from the 1950s, there is a huge gap between those two worlds with very loud advocates on both sides. There are those that think tonal music is natural and that's what composers should write. And there are those who think the contrary. So do you find yourself dealing with that dilemma on a daily basis or do you just write what comes on your mind without being obsessed with those questions? Excellent question. I've got a lot to say about this. First, I'll, state, I'll say that Schoenberg, Berg gave us an incredible new, new way of thinking about music. Um, the second Viennese school, I think, is rich and amazing. And the interesting thing is I sometimes will allude to those styles, for example, in my film music. You know, one of, one, one of the wonderful things about film music is occasionally a very atonal approach is actually the best way to tell the story, right? Whether it's yeah. a horror or House of Cards or Messian. You know, I remember what I was doing. There were some wonderful things I did with um, House of Cards with the string voicings, which, you know, again, these aren't direct quotes. But when I, when I heard them back, I thought, oh, this is like kind of what I love about Messian sort of cluster strings or weird dissonances at wide intervals, you know? So there's all sorts of ways in which I think the explosion of tonality into 12 tones sort of liberated us to think more expansively. I will uh, answer the question a different way. Uh, and from another point of view, which I wanted, I would recommend to every musician, uh, a wonderful new book by John Malcherry called The War on Music. And this is fascinating. John's whole thesis is that at the end of World War II, um, two things happened. One was that there was a huge diaspora of Jews who obviously had left during or before the war who came where they came to Hollywood. A and what did they bring with them? This is the interesting part of John's book. And he's absolutely right on the money. They brought the musical language of the height of romantic storytelling, which is basically who was, who was the most effective and brilliant version of that Richard Wagner, right? Who, a known anti-Semite, but they didn't care about his politics What they did care about was they knew that that late romantic way of storytelling from Wagner and, and, and Strauss and Mahler, that was pure gold in Hollywood. And that's really the language that became Hollywood film music. Of course, the other fascinating part of John's thesis is that also, obviously, after the war ended, Wagner, Wagner it's well known that Hitler loved Wagner too. So that music... Forget about politics, whether it's good or bad, was immediately associated with who? That was the music that Hitler loved. So immediately, 
the rift in Europe really wanted to reject that at all costs for, you know, it's obvious. I mean, we're living in a similar time where politics seems to be coloring our, our, our opinion about art. I feel very passionate about this, that um, it's a dangerous slippery slope because I feel like as soon as you start to use morality as a basis for judging art versus it's just its own internal brilliance, you lose the ability to let art just be what it's supposed to do. Art doesn't have a job than just to be amazing and to be brilliant. So um, I feel like John's book and his thesis is really wonderful because basically the rest of the book, he, he attempts to reclaim um, tonality, melody, music, st musical storytelling um, uh, for, for, for present day. And I think it really applies to the concert hall. And it's been a long time. You know, there was a time like when I was going to Eastman, it was very much the school, like you must write this, you must write eternally. I see this in the, you know, I just did a, a short session at Juilliard Extension where I taught some young composers. It wasn't a film music class. I was just hired to teach composition. I hear this in the young composition students. They seem they're more free of that, of that dogma about we have to write eternal music to be taken seriously or to be in the concert hall. I love that. So I feel like we're in a sort of a, a generational shift. You know, and of course, many, uh, many composers have sort of pi pioneered the way for this going back to, you know, Terry um, on the minimalist side. Um, you've got c composers like Arvo Parrott who went into the sacred music side. So I feel like this, this rediscovery, it's almost like a renaissance of tonality in a way in the concert hall. Obviously, tonality has been with us forever in popular music. Um, but I feel like we're sort of getting past that where, where music that has a, maybe a melody or is memorable or you is, 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 is being embraced again, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. So you, you are in the side of the tonal music between those two parties, like the atonal and the tonal, like uh, Len Leonard Bernstein, I would say. You know, in his book, uh, The Joy of Music, he wrote that whenever human beings will live on planet Earth, tonality will always rise again because there's something like internal in our DNA as human beings living on planet Earth that is the same with tonal music. He's absolutely right. And, and um, you know, it's physics. I mean, it's the Pythagorean, you know, it's the Pythagorean, you know, rate ratios. And it's really is physics. A perfect fifth is a is a vibration, you know, of an octave is a perfect, you know, a doubling of a, of a frequency like these ratios exist. They don't exist in sound. They exist everywhere. You look out to the galaxies, you know, there's all sorts of fractal math. And there's a reason these sounds um, vibrate with us and they create that feeling. Um, I, I agree with Bernstein 100%. I will say, though, um, I don't feel like I have to pick a side. I, feel, I want both. Here's the deal. Like if, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm writing a piece and the best way to tell that story is to write dissonantly or atonality, atonally, I will, def, I will wholeheartedly go there. You know, I think that the key um, word in that Bernstein reference is the word joy. Because I feel very passionately about this, you know, and this is good, good advice for a young composer. It's good advice for a mid-career composer. And it's good advice for maybe a more mature composer like me. I just turned 60. And I never want or wanted to become bitter or cynical about, being, about doing music. And you see this all the time. You see it in composers. You see it in maybe symphony orchestras. They've sat in the same chair and played the same music for 30 years. And the joy has gone. And to me, that's a real tragedy because I always think, there are so many easier ways to make a living than doing music. If it's not bringing you joy and giving you a sense of connection to other fellow human beings, 
I would just simply say, well, why on earth are you spending all this time doing it? If it doesn't bring you some joy, it's not that it's always paradise. doesn't mean that it's not struggle. Um, but if it doesn't bring you some connection to your humanity, um, then why on earth are you doing it? I think joy is probably maybe too narrow. I would call it a, 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 a cathartic connection to your own humanity an emotional language, a way of expressing emotion. I would also give it a spiritual dimension. You know, I think in a, what we, what is largely in the West, um, a post-religious society, um, in your country, it's fascinating because you have a very secular city in Tel Aviv and you have a very um, traditional city, mostly in, in a lot of aspects, in a lot of neighborhoods of Jerusalem, right? Yeah. But in what is largely on the coasts of America and a lot of the big cities in Europe, very much a post, what I would call a post-religious society. Um, I think one of the things that you lose in a post-religious society is an experience of sacred traditions. And I feel very strongly that the concert hall and a chance to turn off your screens and sit with people and just to hear music, that is, a, it's like what Bernstein says, like it's, it's, it's a human, it's a basic human need and hunger we all share. And I feel like music is one of the art forms that we want to, we want, we want to preserve and we want to feed ourselves with um, to, to make us feel. I mean, a perfect way of probably describing this is you, you Everybody that loves music can remember what it felt like after two years of not going to a concert, sitting in a room and hearing, you remember the first concert you heard, heard after the pandemic? Wow, what, a, what an amazing feeling to be with other humans, to hear live music. There is an energy in the room when that happens, which you can't, you can't do it on a Zoom screen, you can't even do it on a recording, can't even do it on film or TV. It's a very specific, um, sacred, I would call almost a tradition that we have of gathering. It's like the, the gathering around the campfire, you know, it's that kind of just ancient communion with each other, with our humanity um, and with art. Wow. That is so inspirational to hear that from you. You know, a student of mine just told me uh, a couple of days ago, something which was really beautiful and it really relates to what you just said. He said that time is the most expensive uh, thing uh, we have because it's actually the only thing cannot be bought with money. It's the only thing money can't buy. I mean, you cannot buy another hour of the day or another year to your life. Yeah. Well Even said. if you are a billionaire, still you have 24 hours a day. So time is the most expensive thing we have. It's actually like infinite uh, expensive. And music actually is something that fills the time of people. So we as musicians, we are in the business of filling the most expensive asset that human beings have. That is beautiful. I love that. Can I borrow that and steal it? <laughs> this is one of your students said that? that yeah, was yeah. Brilliant. This week, what, a composition student of mine. I love that. Oh, you know, and, I, and it's also really meaningful because we are in an era where on terms of the business side of being a musician, it feels so devalued. You know, when you, when you go from the, the, the sort of demolishing of the record industry into streaming and the big data monetizing it all on YouTube, you know, these are trends we can't stop. The future happened, but it, it's left a lot of music creators feeling like, where's the value I'm creating? Where, how am I going to make a living? And it is a real, it's, a, I'm not trying to downplay it. It's a real existential crisis. I mean, I, I wonder this, my wife and I talk about this all the time. How are young artists going to survive? How are they going to support themselves? This is not a trivial matter, but I feel I'm long-term optimistic because of what you just said. This, this creation of value in a life, in, that, in this most precious of assets, is, is, is 
beyond beyond um, it's beyond a dollar amount or a, a, a royalty for a stream. It's 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 beyond that. It's so important. Yeah, definitely. So Jeff, we are almost an hour here. So first of all, thank you so much for your time. As we said, time is the most precious thing. And I want to thank the listeners for their time listening so far. And a couple of more questions before we end. So first of all, what would you be if you weren't a musician? Have you ever thought about that question at all? Or did you know all the time that you're going to be a musician? No, it just came back to me because my, my dear father, Gordon, passed away about a, two months ago. And um, Sorry to hear that. Thank you. He was a wonderful man and, and um, an architect. And wasn't, he was a mechanical engineer and also took up, could, he had a great hand. He could draw. He took up oil painting light, later in life. Some of my happiest memories of him in terms of physical object or some paintings I have that he did. But I remember being a little boy sitting at his drafting table, dreaming of becoming an architect. And I still, to this day, it was funny. I met um, a, we had a couple over for dinner the other night and her father, who became a film composer, also wanted to become an architect. So I, I think um, for me, it probably would have been an architect, although it's a very impractical job. I love buildings. I love spacing spaces. I love, in a way, it's very close to music. And I think painting is very close to music. But arch- architecture is the art of space is the medium. Architecture is the art of defining space and creating spaces with design. And I just feel like that is like, to me, when I walk into a really cool building or a beautiful piece of architecture, I just get, I get a thrill. I get an aesthetic thrill from it. Um, I can't explain it. And did you want to start studying architecture or is it just uh, like a, a dream for the next uh, lifetime? Well, <laughs> without, I, I think, you know, I, we, my, my wife and I've only designed in one home that we have in Northern California. Um, but I'm fascinated at maybe, um, oh, New York is full of old, really cool buildings. You know, maybe someday um, taking on a really cool building that needs a new life and working with an architect and designing some cool space. Maybe that'll be part of my life someday. Um, you know, uh, it's hard to tell, but I've done this in my own life in various ways. I mean, I built my own studios in you know, two houses in Southern California. Um, we built a house. We bought a house that had like this amazing three-story garage. The guy was a cabinet maker. And so I designed and framed the walls and built my own recording studio there. That's where I did Pollock and a lot of my early projects were in that studio. And then we later on, we moved to a house down the street, which is sort of already there, but it was a really cool house with this big central building. So again, we sort of threw out the rules of what, it, what this was. This isn't a house, this is a music room. So we turned the central room in the house into a recording studio. So I think there's a way in which I like, I think one of the things I love about architecture is the idea of creating your own environment in which to create art. I think that's some of the reasons spaces are so important because they feel like there's energy in them. Um, I also love travel. I think the same way. I feel, I love living in New York. I feel like, you know, different places in the world, just there's a different energy you get from living in different places. Um, so I think, I guess in a way, I, I'm a bit of a vampire. I'm always looking for stimulation, aesthetic stimulation to, 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 get, to get the wheels going. It's, I wouldn't say it's an addiction, but I would say it's a curiosity I have and, and wanting to experience um, different different types of brilliance in the world, whether it's nature or architecture or painting or whatever. Interesting. 
And two last questions. First, about studying music. So a lot of young people today are thinking that they can study everything from the internet, either from YouTube, because YouTube has it all, as we all know, or just, you know, finding essays and materials on the internet or digital courses. And you as a teacher also in an institution. So what would you suggest to... Um, young people would you think that they should go to an institution or uh, learn everything by themselves you know i'm okay for self-study i mean i largely taught myself composition in 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 uh, grade school and high school i mean i went to a few uh seminars and went to a jamie abersall jazz camp sort of got started with jazz arranging but i went to the library and took up books and on orchestration and studied scores and just started doing it So there is a lot you can learn. I certainly, when I'm learning things, I go on there all the time. You know, I'm just, I have a new challenge. I'm, one of my bucket list items is I want to be able to play the Goldberg variations on the piano. So I've just been practicing them, you know. And so I haven't really gotten, I haven't, I'm not with a teacher yet, but I, you know, I've got all the books and I know the methods and I've been talking to other pianists. Um, so that's nothing wrong with self-study. And the, and the great thing about that is the resources available to you now are almost infinite. You can almost learn anything online, which I think that's incredible. It actually makes your question very meaningful because, yeah, going to an institution, at least in the, in the United States, is not an inexpensive investment. Um, it's, it's quite expensive. And, and so Eastman um, uh, included. Um, so I do feel like there is an irreplaceable uh, educational value. To an institution like an Eastman or your conservatory or wherever, um, it's 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 being around so many uh, in a huge collection of wise people, and also it's not only being around those teachers; it's being with other students. I've seen this time and time with each class of our Eastman students. They come in. So we have a two years master's program, and it's so wonderful to see just how far they grow in those two years. Um, a big part of their study is obviously. What, what our wonderful professor Mark Waters is able to share with them and, and I'm able to share with them. But I would say at least probably 50% of what any student lives and learns at university, they learn from the other students. So I think one of the real, it's like what I was saying about in-person being so important. You know, one of the important things about being in an institution or going to music school is, well, there's two things. The first thing is that social aspect. The other important thing is just believing, I believe in the canon. I believe in, leaving no stone unturned. So the great thing, um, a good musical school curriculum, you won't come out not knowing something. I'm glad I know how to read music. I'm glad I know how to write counterpoint or a canon. I'm glad I know how to write a string quartet. I know how to write a big band piece. Um, so, you know, all, I'm glad I know basically, you know, a, a decent history of Western music and jazz music. I know how Thad Jones arranged. I know how Count Basie arranged. I know how Wagner structured his operas. I know how Bach thought of counterpoint. Like those are things which take time and immersion. And, um, you know, uh, I saw some uh, thing on Instagram or something, you know, and it was, oh, you know, it was Harold Bloom, uh, who was a wonderful writer. I don't know if he's all no longer with this British guy. He's written some books, wonderful books about, um, or Howard Bloom, no, Harold Bloom. And he, he wrote a book years ago about the importance of the Western canon. And this whole idea of we all want to become artists, but the most, one of the most important things I think in any artist's journey is to know what came before. And it's okay if you want to throw that out. But by, in, but, but by taking that in as fully and you, as you can, and also by feeling, letting your curiosity take you and, and something interests you, go study that. By being at a place where you can really immerse in those things and really become expert at something, 
I think it gives you a wonderful foundation. Um, there's one other metaphor I, I, I think about education and artistic evolving. It's the, I think a lot about a tree. And, and so we're in a very eclectic time where we can film composers, great example, we can borrow from any style. But I always think the trees needs to have roots. Those roots need to go down somewhere. And the, and the better the roots are in the tree, the more varied and creative and, and amazing the, the branches can be. They might not seem like they have anything to do with the roots, but it's the strength of those roots which allow the tree to flower and flourish. Definitely. It's like the metaphor of the iceberg, you know, that drawing of the iceberg that uh, sometimes people put on the internet that you can see only the tip of the iceberg outside the water, but below and inside the water, there's a huge amount of ice there that holds the, all the iceberg. Right. Yeah. No, that's great. Very true. Jeff, this has been so interesting and inspirational so far. So one last question, please. Where do you see yourself in five years from now, Jeff Bill, Model 2028? Oh, God willing, you know, hopefully by, hopefully by then I'll have had an opera premiered. I think that's a big, big bucket list goal for me. Um, you know, uh, I want to be, I also believe, you know, I'm 60, you know, I, I believe in service. So I also want to spend some of my time not just getting richer or more successful or well-known, more well-known. I want to help other people. So I hope Five years from now, I will look back and not just think about things I've accomplished, but um, ways I've helped other people maybe realize their dreams as well. Wow, that's a great ending to the episode. Jeff Bill, once again, thank you so much for your time, which is, as we said earlier, the most precious thing we have. And thank you very much to all the listeners for tuning in. Feel free to reach out with any questions you might have. Look me up on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or through my email listed on my website where I share more content about musical career issues. You're welcome to visit my website at www.awinermusic.com. This is A-W-E-I-N-E-R music.com. And please don't forget to rate the podcast and give it a follow on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This will help it reach more people who might find it interesting. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rewind it and send it to a friend. I will see you in the next episode with another awesome guest. Stay tuned. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Rewind, an optimistic podcast that'll help you in your successful career in music. Amit Weiner hosts musicians, composers, professors, and sound wizards as they share their life stories and career decisions. Stay tuned, it's gonna be epic.